If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willa Cather said, The world broke in two in 1922 or thereabouts, and the French famously called the 1920s Les Années Folles, the crazy years, the times when we forgot so much, the times when we forgot about the Great War and went forwards into a different place, which perhaps was better or perhaps was not. That was Kate Williams discussing the 1920s in a talk from our 2015 History Weekend event. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our second podcast of August 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For this week's episode, we're going to broadcast a lecture from our 2015 History Weekend event in Malmesbury. The speaker was the historian, author and broadcaster, Kate Williams. And for the subject of her talk, she chose to focus on the pivotal decade of the 1920s. 
So I'm thrilled to see you all this morning talking about the 1920s. This is the um, uh, first time I've ever given a talk which includes things that move. So um, we were busily trying to make the things move earlier, and I'm convinced they will still move. And if they don't move, then uh, Dave and I have just got to the Charleston together. So, uh, you know, let's, let's hope that they, 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 they do. And I'm um, delighted to be talking about the 1920s. Um, my new book uh, that comes out in November... And it's called Edge of the Fall. The first part of my novel is called The The Storms of War. It's about a family from 1914 to 1918, about their lives as an Anglo-German family in Britain during the First World War. And this one takes them through the 1920s. And as a consequence, it takes them through the time of the flapper, the time of the jazz age, the amazing changes in politics, in science and in art. And so as a consequence, I wanted to ask this really crucial question, is the 1920s, is it a roar or is it just a whimper? Because, you know, when I look at history, we had that marvellous debate last night that I managed to just about get here from uh, uh, Guildford Festival in time to attend. We look at history and there are huge swathes of time. And yet when we look at the 20th century, things seem to accelerate in a matter of decades. And I'm going to argue, and I think I'll see what you think at the end, that the 1920s, this short amount of time, you know, 10 years, really eight years, really, when we see the accelerations, were one where we, we could never would recognise what was at the beginning and what was at the end and how the country changed in terms of science, in terms of industry, travel, lives of women, lives of um, the, the general lower middle classes, the general population, nothing could be as transformed. And yet, was this really a good thing? Was the progress, was the excess, was the roaring, was that all a good thing? Willa Kather said, The world broke in two in 1922 or thereabouts. And the French famously called the 1920s les années folles, the crazy years, the times when we forgot so much, the times when we forgot about the Great War and went forwards into a different place, which perhaps was better or perhaps was not. So a bit of a squeeze to try and get a 3653 days in only an hour, but I'm going to try, well, not 45 minutes really, I'm going to try hard. And I'm going to look particularly at some areas, girl about town, politics, science, travel, what came before and the arts. So what came before the Great War, the massive changes, the deaths of so many, the awful deaths and injuries, followed by the massive uh, upsurge of death in the Spanish flu. Europe was never the same again. The whole idea in Britain, for example, of Victorian diplomacy, in which you simply say to yourself, we are going to marry our children into the families of the world. We're just going to write letters when things go slightly wrong. That was all over. It became politics. The It was the end of royal power, royal empire, royal support. What was Britain's greatest and most powerful time in the Victorian era, which Saul was talking about so beautifully last night, it was completely over by the end of the First World War. Britain was changed, Europe was changed, and the whole world was completely different. And because we focused so heavily on war and, and winning the First World War, so much of our other parts of life had been put on the back burner. And it's very familiar to ourselves politically that, for example, women's suffrage was put on the back burner. It seemed like women were getting very close to the idea of suffrage in 1913, 1914. But when the war broke out, uh, the the suffragists and the suffragettes said, we're going to put the fight for women's suffrage to the back and we're going to focus on the war effort. And also Irish home rule had been getting very intense. And then when the war broke out, the politicians said, we've got bigger fish to fry. That was 
was the same for science, for art, and for the burgeoning desire of women to have independence, for novels, for and and for complete technological innovation. So many of them were put aside because of the First World War. And when the First World War ended, it was time to return to them. And in particular, the Europe was never the same again, and the lives of women would never be the same again. Women were given so much freedom during the war. They were given, initially, the politicians didn't want women to be part of the war effort. They were told to go home. And yet, thanks in particular to certain more enlightened souls, for example, Lloyd George, who realised that after conscription, if we didn't have women in the jobs, we'd have no one to do them. So women became factory workers, they became bus conductors, they became nurses, they became ambulance drivers. And the freedom that they had... And and particularly for the working classes, the money that they had was something that they didn't want to give up. When the men came back in 1918, they got their jobs back simply for two reasons. The unions were too strong because many employers wanted to keep women on for two reasons. They were seen as more docile and also they were much cheaper. Their wages were much lower, but the unions were very powerful. And yet there weren't enough men to fulfill all the jobs that there were. And so many women still did keep their jobs. You couldn't, after that huge expansion of female employment put women back in their home. And also we have to remember there wasn't a home for many of them to go to because the idea of finishing school then waiting to get married simply wasn't possible anymore because so many men had died. First film work, so into the 1920s. And these women are summarised for so many the absolute moral decay of the 1920s. These women are the complete difference to the good Victorian and Edwardian woman, the middle-class girl who waits for her suitor. These women are the ones who were told at school during World War One there, no, there will be no men for you to marry, so you must go out and make your own way. And they did all the things that their mothers would have found so shocking. We've never had, I would argue, such a massive change in fashion. The fact that women's hairstyles pretty much remained very similar throughout the 18th, 19th and, and um early 20th century. It was piled up, it was put back, it was high hair. Almost immediately, we have this overnight change in which women are cutting their hair short, they're wearing what they define as short skirts, we perhaps wouldn't, with the, you know, but they're about there. They define as short skirts and the whole apparatus of the Edwardian woman, that tiny corset, that huge bustle, which rather looked rather marvellous, but it also had the effect of completely constraining movement, making meaning that women spent hours every day getting ready and thinking about dress. The flapper dress, you put it on, you put the shoes on, you're ready to go. The hair, you didn't take long to do. You had a slip of, slick of makeup, which again was something that Victorians would have found absolutely shocking only for the courtesan. The, the new woman was someone who the older generation had never seen before. And I do think a lot of this is to do with the World War I in the fact that the young people saw what a terrible wreck the adults had made and wanted to do something that was completely different. So with the ending of World War I, there was a massive housing boom across uh, Britain and particularly in the United States, increased in home ownership. The idea was that these returning soldiers had to have homes and the idea was that we needed to repay them and people wanted their own houses. The I- Once upon a time that we could be crammed into small places because people felt they'd given so much of their life to the, their countries and to their empire they wanted to return the League of Nations is founded but the United States is against joining a 19th amendment to the US constitution gives women the right to vote the Russian civil war ends but the country struggles in famine and the summer Olympics takes place in Antwerp emphasising reconciliation after World War I 
And the Palmer raids of the US lead to the arrest and deportation of 6,000 foreign aliens suspected as leftish. A, a brief snapshot of what's going on in 1920, completely different to what happened before. The Irish Revolution leads to the Government of Ireland Act, providing for the partition of Ireland to Northern Ireland. Russia and Poland establish a permanent border when they sign the Treaty of Riga. And the Emergency Quota Act is passed in the USA to restrict immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. And the Communist Party of China is created. So it's fascinating when you look at a population graph of the time, which unfortunately I did have, but it uh, doesn't seem to like the BBC History computer, sadly. When you look at the What's very striking in the aftermath of World War I is how the population dips in 1918 and 1919, but almost immediately it's back up to the same levels in 1920. And then in 1920, 1921, it starts to soar even higher. So although the uh, world population was decimated by the war and the Spanish flu, at the same time, it almost was completely renovated. And there were these people were back in society and what they wanted to do was they wanted to never go back to the war. They wanted to have freedom. They wanted to spend money. And they were convinced, absolutely convinced, that there would never be another war again. They thought that that had been the war to end all wars. They thought they were living in a time of peace, of freedom, of prosperity. And so there was no need to save. There was no need to stack up money for the future because there would always be money. There would always be peace. And there would always be this amazing consumer boom, which was what they were experimenting with. So the train... Um, became increasingly important, particularly across America and Britain. The train became cheap when it it had been used so effectively in the war to transport goods and services and weapons around. Now it became useful to transport the average ordinary person. The tram was also effective in the cities, but this is the moment in which the tram is beginning to die, the Victorian tram beginning to die and being taken over by the bus and by the car. So what's incredible is that how car ownership became the idea, the American dream. So by the end of 1921, there were 10 million cars in the US compared to only a few million in the years before. Everyone wanted something like this rather marvellous 1928 Rolls-Royce. And the car, the idea of the car, the dream of the car absolutely took America and indeed Britain by storm. So you have the President Warren G. Harding spending $75 million to improve the roads in the United States. And this growth of the car, this growth of the roads only increases the jobs available. It created industry and it also created the holiday industry. Because if you have a car, you can leap into the car and go on holiday. So California took off as a holiday destination in America and in this country. It only increased the popularity of those Victorian seaside resorts and also the Lake District. Um, This Ford model is a 1920 car, $600 to buy in 1920, so incredibly expensive. And yet so many families were desperate to save up for it because it summarised freedom and it summarised progress. And it also summarised what America could make for itself. Air travel was in its infancy. Uh, The first commercial passenger service across the Atlantic was by the German airship Graf Zeppelin in October 1928. They were rather um, outnumbered, 20 passengers and 43 crew, so slightly outnumbered. And um, the first round-the-world flight was in 1929, um, in just 21 days. uh, I mean, it seems amazing to me looking at this thing that it ever got anywhere at all, but but it did. But in terms of general travel, still the ocean liner was still the dominant form. And Amelia Earhart here looking absolutely marvellous on the left-hand side, 
born in Kansas, she summarizes the airplane age. Born in Kansas in 1897, in 1920, 1920 she went to an airfield in California and Frank Hawks gave her a ride. Her father paid $10 for it and that was the end of that. She said, I knew I had to fly. She became in 1923 the 16th woman with a pilot's license, so not the first, the 16th. And she bought her own uh, little yellow airplane, the Canary, bought another one later called, and she called it the Yellow Peril. And after... Chaslinda flew across the Atlantic in 1927. They asked Amelia Edwards if she wouldn't mind being a woman who flew also. Um, she did, but, in, but also the problem was that she couldn't manipulate the instruments in the aeroplane, so she was just a passenger. So she was famous for flying across the Atlantic in the 1920s, but she didn't actually operate the plane. She uh, did want to do something about that, so in 1932 she did it herself. She flew non-stop solo across the Atlantic and became, as we know, one of our most celebrated and most famous air travel pioneers. Um, and there is an, an early picture of a small private passenger jet. But still, despite all this incredible progress, we still have the use of the traditional methods of farming and transport here. And the American desire and the British desire and across Europe, for food, also absolutely accelerated. Farmers simply couldn't keep track with the amount of food people were expecting. They had the privations of wartime, and in the 1920s, they wanted to eat, and they wanted to drink, and they wanted to celebrate. And uh, thank goodness they had all those energetic dances, otherwise they would have been very large. But they, they were eating a huge amount, and farmers simply couldn't keep up with it. So the 1920s was a time of incredible scientific exploration. And this, a lot of the foregrounds for this was laid down in the Victorian period and the early Edwardian period. But as we said, so much of this was put aside during World War I to focus on war technology. So we believe that the earliest rocket, I mean, this is a, a matter of much his, historical debate, was in 1264, the internal combustion rocket. It was a, a firework used by the Empress Mother Kung Shang for her son's feast in China. And that, we think, is the first rocket. But uh, the Chinese were miles ahead of us, but it took us a long time to create the um, internal combustion rocket. And Robert Goddard, um, here he is, he, uh, he, he created the first liquid propelled by attaching a supersonic nozzle to a liquid field rocket's engine combustion changer, chamber. And this created the first rocket. Here he is in March 26 at Oban, Massachusetts, setting it off. It looks completely freezing there for 1926. But there he is beginning the first idea of rocket and setting us into the possibility of travel much beyond Atlantic flights and much beyond traveling in the car. Uh, the incredible um, advance of penicillin, the incredible advance of antibiotics, of course, this would perhaps be the one thing that had they managed to discover this before World War I, um, we, 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 that the whole life would have changed. I mean, imagine how, how, life, how different life would have been had we discovered antibiotics and penicillin, not only on the battlefield, but also in the period of the Spanish flu. So it had been, the mould had been much studied throughout the 19th century, um, but it was Fleming who found that if it were grown in the correct substrate, it actually had these antibiotic properties. But unfortunately, Fleming was a very poor and shy um, operator, uh, orator and operator. He wasn't really very good, and like, say, Amelia Earhart, about self-promotion, about getting the vision, the vision of it out. So it was really... Uh, it was it was not him that was going to get all the all the kind of power and all the accolades for it. It was Howard Flahey who um, showed it actually killed bacterial infection in mice. Insulin also another incredible 
uh, development. It's amazing to think now that children, particularly with diabetes, were simply put in wards in comas waiting to die with their families around them across the developed world. There was simply nothing possibly to do with it. Again, this goes back to the, the 19th century. It was in 1869 that studying the pancreas under the microscope, scienti- scientists realised there were tiny little nodules and they thought perhaps this was something producing some kind of chemical. But it really, again, it was laid, laid to rest during the First World War and it was only after the First World War that the people suddenly started to explore into what was going on. So um, Frederick Banting, he wrote to J.J.R. McLeod, who was a professor of physiology at the University of Toronto, and said, look, I think I'm going to find something here. So the professor said, all right, I'm going on holiday to Scotland. You ha- I, I, I think this is ridiculous, but you have my laboratory for the summer and I'll give you 10 dogs. There you go. And hopefully you can find something out of that. You can have, and you can have a laboratory assistant, two laboratory assistants if you want. And um, Frederick said, I don't need two, I'll just have one. So the two laboratory assistants tossed for the job. And Charles Best got the job. And uh, we have to feel sorry for the other one who didn't get the toss, because it was Charles Best who got half the Nobel Prize money and half the accolades for having discovered it. So uh, that was perhaps one of the unluckiest coin tosses in history, I think. You can see the amazing acceleration. By, so by January 11, 1922, the, uh, Frederick Banting and, his, uh, and Charles Best do the first injection into a 14-year-old young man who is dying of diabetes in a hospital in Toronto. Um, he has a bad reaction, but they do the second one. It's on the 23rd of January 1922, and it's su- successful. And so almost immediately, insulin is the winner. Diabetes can be treated, and something that was a, a massive child killer is... Um, is, is beaten so almost almost overnight. So television as well. The 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 first the first cathode ray tube to use a hot rod in 1922. So television. When you look at the development of the history of television, there are a lot of people looking at the same thing at the same time. And it is really about who won the race and about who got the patent first. So I re- I feel rather sorry for the person who lost the coin toss about discovering insulin. I also feel rather sorry for Kenjiro Tamagaki, who displayed a TV system with a 40-line resolution at Hamamaku Industrial School in 1926, but didn't apply for a patent. So, uh, oops, what a mistake. And then in September 1927, the uh, Farnsworth created a tube which had its first straight line at his San Francisco lab. And in 1928, he held a press demonstration. And in 1929, he added an electrical generator. So in 1929, Farnsworth transmitted his first live human image, which was a a 3.5-inch image of his wife, Elmer, with her eyes absolutely tight shut because the lights were so bright. So it always makes me think of um, Mike TV in Willy Wonka. So the fact that in 1929, you have a tiny image of a human on a TV, screen completely begins the absolute TV revolution that we then saw in the later years. So our science, it was a time of almost immeasurable time of change and revolution and inventions that people could hardly get up to date with. Politics also, in particularly in Germany. So after the war, the reparations were set at 269 
billion marks or about $32 billion. And some economists said, we can't have this. It's going to take Germany till 1988 to pay these back. And yet the force of the international communities. Um, feeling that Germany had to pay it back was so strong that Germany was dumped with this huge amount of reparations. By 1923, Germany couldn't give the coal and couldn't give the steel that was expected. France and Belgium responded by occupying the Ruhr Valley. Um, and the massive hyperinflation that's so celebrated came after that. And by the end of 1923, the average German person's life savings of 100,000 marks couldn't buy a loaf of bread. And in 1924, a new payment plan was created, but that made Germany completely dependent on the United States. And this, as we all know, created the climate for Hitler to, to create power. So in 1923, this was the beginning, really, of the moment he got power. So the Nazi party had been very small. 1923, he absolutely soared the membership from three to 15,000. That was the beginning of the brown shirts. And so in 1928, the Nazis polled just 2.5% of the vote. But there was something that was going to happen in 1929 that made suddenly Nazism very much more attractive. So the lives of women, as you saw, was changed increasingly, completely during the war. And most of all, in Britain, it was the extension of the right to vote. So the right to vote was given to women in 1918. Uh, they had to be over 30. They had to have property. Here we are with the wonderful Emmeline Pankhurst, for whom many people saw as a leader of the beginning of the right to vote for women. So it wasn't ideal. You had to be over 30. You had to have property. And there are many arguments to say that, yes, it was partly due to respect for women's effort during the war, but also it was a politically expedient strategy because simply after the war, so many men of the upper middle class, of the middle class strata had died and the Conservative Party were very concerned that they would lose a lot of ground to the working class man because he was more there were more of them. So as a consequence, they enfranchised what we can see very clearly was the middle class woman, the woman over 30, the woman of property in an attempt to stay in power. And certainly um, we were one of the earliest countries to get it when you think that it, France didn't get the vote till 1944. But in 1928, the law was utterly changed. In 1928, in Britain, all women over 21 could now vote. So we had complete parity with men. And in 1920 in the United States, it was the first presidential election where women could vote. There were many laws also that changed for women. In 1923 in Britain, a woman only had to prove adultery against her husband. She didn't have to prove further fault. And that made it equal because before that, a man only had to prove adultery against his wife to a divorcer, but a woman had to prove adultery and um, desertion and cruelty. And so this meant that a wife had much more freedom. And in 1925, the laws were extended about separation. And there was a lot of moral concern about this. People said this is going to increase divorce. This is going to mean that divorce is soaring. And many social commentators in both the United Kingdom and America said that divorce was soaring. But um, until 1929... The amount of divorces per thousand, this is the 1920s idea of soaring divorce, the amount of divorces per thousand was eight. So uh, <laughs> that's the idea of a soaring divorce level in the, 19, in the 1920s, which uh, you know, slightly different now. 
So the Irish War of Independence, as I briefly mentioned earlier, this again was put on the back burner during World War One, and it soared back up after World War One. The massive battle for home rule, the massive battle for independence, and it was a very bitter battle. And the Treaty of Anglo-Irish in 1921 allowed Northern Ireland, created by the um, Government of Ireland Act in 1920, to opt out of the free state if it wished, and it did so in December 1922. And here are the members of the Kilkenny Brigade flying column pictured near the end of the Irish War. A rather blurry picture, but, it, you know, it was, it, this, the, the, it was throughout the war, the, both sides of the conflict had put the conflict aside to focus on the overall massive global war. And now, straight after, they wanted an answer. Prohibition. 1920, thank God we didn't have it in this country, because throughout the war there was a lot of talk about drinking. For example, in 1917, Lloyd George said, we are facing three enemies, the Germans, the Austrians and drink, and drink is the worst. Lloyd George was completely obsessed that Britain was enervated through drinking, and he brought in perhaps what was one of the strangest laws in 1917, that... Um, you couldn't go to a bar and buy someone else a drink. You could only buy yourself a drink. You couldn't buy someone else a drink. So if I was to take Dave now to the bar of the old Bell and try and buy him a drink in 1917, um, I'd be arrested, Dave would be arrested, and the barmaid would also be arrested. And if you couldn't pay the fine, you were imprisoned. This was the cunning plan of the um, British government to stop us from buying rounds because they felt that the basis of working class um, failure was the love of rounds. And um, it was also to stop women from drinking because many men wrote to the newspapers, particularly in Manchester and Liverpool, complaining that there were large queues of factory girls standing at the bar chatting while they waited for their drink and not moving away quickly after they had the drinks bought for them. How things change. <laughs> and um, it's really interesting because I thought this was a very archaic rule. And, um, and, uh, I, but, but I tweeted it and I said, isn't this a very silly rule that you can't buy someone else a drink and it stops rounds? And I had an avalanche of replies saying, I wish they'd bring that back. <laughs> I wish they'd bring it back. I'm sick of buying rounds for all my annoying workmates and my annoying friends. Why can't they bring that law back. It was a bit of a failure. Again, in America, there were similar prohibitions on drink, but they were particularly because they wanted to save grain for the actual war effort, for war consumption. And in 1920, the actual, the wartime ban on alcohol, the wartime reduction on alcohol became part of prohibition and it became absolutely crucial to American life. And this changed the whole notion of American life and in two massive ways. It was crime and it was jazz because by 1925, we think there's about 100,000 underground drinking cellars, i.e. speakeasies, and these are places in which crime flourishes and which jazz flourishes and it's also a place where the new woman can go and have fun. So alcohol became more dangerous to consume and organised crime blossomed. And this was a real problem from the American people because they could see very clearly that organised crime was blossoming. I don't know whether anyone has been to the Las Vegas Museum of Mafia uh, activity that I have been to, but a lot of it is all about life in the 1920s. And um, I would recommend it if you ever happen to be in Las Vegas. I was there for a conference, of course. Yes, I was. And, you know, for example, when you have the 1929 St. Valentine's Day massacre, the people in, in America are becoming very dubious. On one hand, they see the, the idea behind prohibition, these very strong 19th century temperance movements that said, 
It creates violence, it creates crime, it creates domestic violence, it creates impoverishment of families, and it creates uh, child abuse and child poverty. They see that point, and yet you have at the same time this massive soaring of organised crime, of gangland activity, because the speakeasies are so heavily controlled by gangs, and it is the classic American time of the classic American gangster. And uh, corruption of police and public officials occurred and so in America you have a huge debate over the point of prohibition because simply if it's trying to stop crime how come crime is only increasing 1922 you see the massive acceleration of what's going on across the world the USSR is created Egypt declares independence the Ford New Combat Act places a high tariff on imports into the United States because they're so convinced they want to create United States goods. We've got the car, we've got the, we've got the clothes, we've got the makeup, we don't need anything else. And um, as you might see, that's going to create some economic problems further down the line. And Gandhi preached for mass, mass civil disobedience, non-violence, peaceful resistance against British rule in India, and British authorities sentenced him to six years imprisonment. King Tutankhamun's tomb is opened in 1923. As I was saying, insulin is mass-produced. The Great Kanto earthquake devastates Tokyo and Yokohama with 100,000 fatalities. Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon and Prince Albert, the Duke of York, are married at Westminster Abbey. He later became King George VI. He'd asked her three times to get married, and this was the third and final time that he tried because he was so determined to have her. She was not very convinced about marrying into the royal family, particularly because her parents were very dubious about the royal family. They, they, they said about the royals that they felt that the people had to be fed royals in the same way that sea lions have to be fed fish. The girl about town, the flapper, she did everything that her mother thought was disgraceful. She had short skirts, she went out on her own, she worked. And for the first time, women work and they have money and they don't see the point of waiting for a suitor. And not only because they, they feel, although I said... In terms of population, we have the, it pretty much writes itself in 1920. People psychologically felt it hadn't righted itself. They felt there were much more men that women than men. I mean, there always are, but mostly because women live longer. But they felt there were much more young women than men, and they felt that these women were never going to get married. So they had to make their own fun, and they had to go out and work. They had, and so they didn't spend, they didn't save up their money for when they became good housewives. They spent it on clothes, they spent it on makeup, they spent it on the cinema, and they spent it on dancing, and also they spent it on going to speakeasies. Because even though these were not very moral places, they were absolutely filled with women because they'd be no fun without them. The new woman, she cuts her hair, she's glamorous, she's exciting, and she openly wears makeup, and this doesn't make her a prostitute. And the soaring, which I'll talk in a little bit, the massive explosion of Hollywood films, these add to the model of the new woman. The new woman is glamorous, she looks like a film star, and it becomes for the first time ever that the woman on on the... silver screen, you can make yourself look like her if you have the right makeup, you have the right clothes. And the idea of copying the great actresses is what is completely begins in the 1920s. Women looked at the great actresses in the Victorian times, but there was no way they would ever want to copy them because those women were seen as absolutely on the edge moral society. Uh, the most treasured name in perfume, Chanel, the glamour, the girl about town. She was alluring. And most of all, 
The reason why, we might say, why do they tolerate the flapper? This society that has been so obsessed with women's sexuality, so obsessed with making women so imprisoned, they weren't allowed to go out. Why was it in the 19th century people were so invested in creating the angel in the house, female morality, and yet in the 1920s, women were rather more allowed to do what they wanted? And it was all about business. It was so much about the fact that business was seen as perpetuated by the female domestic consumer in the 19th century. Century, the woman at home who ran her home, who bought items from, from her home, perhaps from male order, and, and who ran the servants, the middle class pushing forwards. And in the 1920s, the new economic a new economic unit who's changing the world is the young woman. She buys makeup, she buys perfume, she buys clothes, she buys cinema tickets. She's the person who is seen as pushing forward the economy. And so that's why they don't, it, she is allowed to flourish and she's almost encouraged to flourish. And advertising is full of the ideal woman of the flapper. Here we are seeing here um, a rather, um, the, the move from the evening dress, the day dress, and the general about town dress, including this rather marvellous tennis outfit there so we have it throughout there we are throughout the um uh, up to the period of of the war and then we see the real movement here so an incredible movement here from 1924 1925 up to 1926 and look at that for 1927 what a what a tiny skirt and there it goes down again in 1929. And um, there are a lot of theories about why skirts rise and fall according to economic depression and economic, um, econ- economic booms. But certainly we found throughout history that skirts get shorter during times of economic boom. And it's very interesting. I found that very fascinating because actually... Uh, shorter skirts you would think would cost less because there's less material so you would think in terms of actual blatant economics you'd think it makes more sense to have a long skirt in times of economic um economic boom because they have more money but it's exactly the same throughout the 20th century in the 60s a time when we saw ourselves as wealthy skirts were absolutely teeny tiny and then they dropped again in the 70s during a time of much more um, economic privation so for some reason there is a there is a need for women's skirts to get get shorter in times of economic success and I think that you know I don't know what we can really say about the current fashion for quite short skirts at the moment and maybe that means that we're not going to have a crash for just a just a few years time but certainly they drop again in 1929 and there is an argument that that's partly because in 1929 when we have the crash that the way in which to kickstart the economy is to create these um very heavy on material looks that cost more the the identical argument behind Dior's new look that came in during the depression depression just after world war ii along with the girl came the new man so here with the, here's the new man the new look to go with the flapper and many women didn't find this very inspiring they much preferred to be with their girlfriends i'm afraid the girl about town became the new look the dancing the charleston the flapper it was wild it was seen as sexy it was seen as naughty women went to the music halls and it was the first time that you would go to the music hall to watch and then you'll be able to do that yourself in a speakeasy in a dance hall and it was that women dancing was something women did for pleasure with their female friends so the the dancing that we have now as ladies all around our handbags in the disco it began in the 1920s with these rather marvellous moves, which I'm, I'm rather glad that this is, video is working. I don't have to do them because they're so very complicated. This is a time, you can see it, that the belief that you were never going to have war again, you were never going to have sadness. It was a time of nightclubs, it was a time of fun, and it was a time of youth. So 
So throughout the Victorian period, it, no one really wanted to be young. No one really wanted to be a child, and particularly no one wanted to be a teenager. You wanted to be an adult in charge of your own home. So the ideal age for the Victorian period was late 30s, early 40s. Uh, the, the pursuit and the desire to be young and glamorous simply was absent. And this was transformed in the 1920s. It became a time when the most fashionable age to be was 21, 22, the same age as the decade. You wanted to be young. You wanted to be glamorous. You didn't want to be 40. You wanted to be free and easy. And that whole chasing after youth, and particularly after looking younger with the sudden soaring of cosmetics and face creams that make you look younger, which is so popular and powerful now, um, completely began in the 1920s. And it looks like we're never going to go back to thinking that um, uh, we'd much rather be 40 than 21. Our definition of the flapper, says the Flapper magazine in 1922. At the request of many of our readers, we are herewith presenting our definition of the flapper, as published this month. She's independent, full of grace, a pleasing form, a pretty face, is often saucy, also pert, and doesn't think it wrong to flirt. Knows what she wants and gets it too. Receives the homage that's her due. Her love is warm, her hate is deep. For she can laugh and she can weep. But she is true as she, as she can be. Her will's unchanged, her soul is free. She charms the young, she jars the old. Within her beats a heart of gold. She furnishes the spice of life and makes some boob a darn good wife. So you see how traditional the setup is here. That we have this freedom, and in the flapper, whole magazine for the flapper devoted to flapper life and fashion, and particularly advertising. But still, they have to say at the end, she'll get married, she'll be a good girl, she'll forget about it, and she'll settle down to be the good domestic housewife. Which, of course, they didn't. 1924, the first Macy's Thanksgiving parade. Ellis Island closes an immigration empty point. First Winter Olympics. The Indian Citizenship Act confers citizenship on all Native Americans born within the United States, and the first round-the-world flight is completed after 175 days by two planes from the U.S. Army, as we were just talking. 1925, the Butler Act, which prohibits evolution from being taught in schools, is passed in Tennessee in 1925, not repealed until 1967. The classic novel, The Great Gatsby, is published by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And in 1926, the general strike in which the men who'd fought for so much, sacrificed so much, expected their wages to keep uh, pace. Route 66 is open from Chicago to L.A. British warships battle for control in China off the Yangtze River. And the famous magician and escape artist Harry Houdini dies from a burst appendix at the age of 52. The Ford Motor Company announces the creation of a 40-hour work week for factory workers. The arts and cinema, it began a massive expansion of films, as I was saying. TV technology changed everything. Studio system began. MGM was founded in the middle of the decade. And it was the age of the Picture Palace, the theatre of 1,200, almost bigger than BBC history seating marquees, with orchestras and Baroque decoration and the great stars, Clara Bow, Douglas Fairbanks, and the development of sound in 1926. And with sound, almost immediately, it began the idea of the musical. Film, silent films had had music because you had the orchestra playing. So people expected music and film to go together. So when we watch a silent film on our TV, 
TVs at home. It's a completely different experience to how they would watch it in the early 20th century. But the beginning of the music and and dialogue on film, there was two things. Concentrating on dialogue, acting became much more important. Actors who could speak became very important, as in um, Singing in the Rain. So acting became vital, and also the musical became one of the most popular ever um, film genres that we had. And it was in 1927 that the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences Sciences were first founded. The great films we had during the 1920s, Charlie Chaplin and The Jazz Singer from 1927, it became a time in which young people, what they wanted to do in their evenings was go to the cinema. And the cinema gave them dreams, the cinema gave them beauty, and the cinema sold an image of the flapper of the uh, new man to the entire world, and that's what they also wanted to buy. What was so impressive about the the cinema, about the moving picture, was that it really created this freedom for people. So after the... So I'm going to show a bit of the Mickey Mouse film, the um, Steamboat Willie that was found in 1929, that we got a brief flash of, and then it kind of collapsed. Um, Also during the period, we saw the expansion of Art Deco, the Art Decoratif, from the Exposition Internationale de Art Decoratif and and Industrial Moderne in Paris in 1925, the idea of traditional craft motives with the images of the machine age, the rich colours, the bold shapes. And what was really important about Art Deco, as against its predecessor, Art Nouveau, was it wasn't about craft. So there's Steamboat Willie, there, 1929, the beginning of Mickey Mouse. And what's very striking about Mickey Mouse here um, is that he is not a, a film for children. This is a film for adults. Um, and um, what becomes the hallmark of a children's film, for example, you know, uh, extreme violence towards cats and swinging Minnie, <laughs> swinging Minnie Mouse around by her bloomers uh, is, is, uh, are jokes for adults, but they become vital to this film for children. So the beginning of the Walt Disney, of the dream of the of the, um, the dream of the cartoon. The Academy of Motion Pictures, here is their first, the first Oscars, notably in May 1929, no one knew what was coming. The first Oscars celebration here in 1929 there, the most glamorous and glitzy occasion you could possibly have. The novel too began to soar in the 1920s, the arts, many by the female novelist once more because they were told in 1918 they would never have a husband. They went out to find their own, own world, and such as Agatha Christie, such as Dorothy L. Sayers, and A. Milne and Ian Forster. What's fascinating about this period is there are really two things that the novel is doing. Number one, it's creating the glamour, such as F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's creating the glamour, it's creating the beauty, and it's undermining that. And number two, it's looking into murder. And it is very striking that in a period in which they, people believe they are eternally at peace. They're so fascinated by the traditional English murder. Art Deco, as I was just saying quickly while we're getting Mickey to work, the use of the technological with the colours, with the new. So we have very much the idea of science and technology is given tribute to by architecture. BBC, beginning in the 1920s, here it is what it is now, posh flats along the mall. 1927, Charles Lindbergh flies the spirit of St. Louis across the Atlantic non-stop, direct from New York, the earthquake strikes in in China. Work begins on Mount Rushmore in 1920s, carving the faces of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. It takes nearly 15 years. The Great Mississippi Flood in 1927 affects 700,000 people, the greatest national disaster in U.S. history. The Columbine Mine Massacre in Serene, Colorado during 1927. Amelia Earhart flies as the first passenger, as I was saying. Uh, not keen to be dead weight, wanted to do it herself. The iron lung for polio patients developed. Republican candidate Herbert Hoover wins after defeating the Democratic candidate. And Mickey Mouse appears in Steamboat Willie. 
1929, uh, the turf wars became excessive between the gangs. The St. Valentine's Massacre in Chicago in 1929. Vatican City becomes independent. And we have the first Academy Awards. So everything seemed like it was going to last forever. It was going to be marvellous. And how did the crash come about? How was it in the, uh, the same year we have the Oscars, the most glamorous ceremony at the beginning of May, and then by the end we have the terrible crash? And it really was because of overexpansion. It was because of overbuying, overconsuming, overborrowing. And simply there simply wasn't the money to support the level of borrowing, the level of boom that had been created. And once the, once the American market began to fall, once the mortgages began to default, the American um, farms began to default and the American land began to default, America pulled in their bank loans from the rest of Europe and the rest of Europe followed after the rest of them. And the crash, when it came, was swift and it was brutal. And the glamour and the excess and almost that, that childish naivety that we saw so much in the 1920s, that was gone almost overnight. So in conclusion, was it roaring or was it whimpering? So it, how, how was it roaring? There was women, there was social change, there was an American decade, it was growing wealth, it was growing excess, it was fun. And I do think it was, it was actually, when you look at it, it was quite a childish decade of freedom and fun and lack of responsibility. Women didn't want to get married, neither did men. Everyone wanted to be free. And then we have the massive economic crash. Not everything changed, but for me... I think perhaps it roared too much. Perhaps it was just too roaring. For, it ended in the Great Depression. And after the Depression and the terrible time of the 1930s, it, it took almost till after World War II for those advances, for, the, for that moment of freedom to be regained once more. And it's very interesting that when we look at the cycle of boom and bust, that the only way of getting us out of bust is by... It is often seen through personal behaviour. So if we look at the 1920s and we say women and men didn't want to get married, they wanted to have fun, they didn't want to spend their money on settling down, on buying a house, on buying a baby cradle. So we have this, what seems as a soaring divorce rate, or eight per thousand, and a refusal to get married, a very late marriage among women. This completely changes almost overnight after the Depression, and people get married very quickly. So it's very interesting, and this is across the board, that in times of depression, in times of boom, we shorten our skirts and we don't get married. And in times of bust, we lengthen our skirts and we start getting married and we start having babies. And that's very striking because there's nothing more expensive, it seems to me, than a baby. Whatever time you live in, it's the most expensive thing you can have. You simply can't buy as, as many lipsticks and, and uh, silver and, and beautiful films in the 1920s. That, however many lipsticks and however many flapper dresses you buy, it's not as much as a baby's going to cost. And that's the same, I'd say now, in 2015, how expensive small children are. And yet the birth rate absolutely soars during times of depression, and so does the marriage and settling down rate. And as a consequence of that, that human behaviour, that's what gets us out of depression. So the fact is that we all start settling down, we start getting married, we start having children, and that generates a huge amount of income in itself because we spend so much money on baby cradles and houses and all the rest of it. Uh, but even when, even although people immediately changed their behaviour with the beginning of the Great Depression, that wasn't enough. And it took the Second World War and the aftermath really to get us out of the Depression. So although the 1920s roared, although they were amazing, at the same time, they did, I think, roar just a bit too much. Thank you very much.
that was Kate Williams. Her historical novel set in the 1920s, entitled The Edge of the Fall, is out now in the UK, published by Orion. It's also available in the US, published by Pegasus. Meanwhile, tickets for this year's History Weekend events are currently on sale. They're taking place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October, and then York from the 18th to 20th of November. You can see the full lineup and book tickets at historyweekend.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. And now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason. Sherlock Holmes author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has been cleared of involvement in the Piltdown fraud, the faked discovery of fossil evidence of an early human species which misled anthropologists for almost 40 years. On the 18th of December 1912, fragments of a fossil human skull and ape-like jawbone were unveiled at a meeting of the Geological Society in London, and newspapers worldwide ran with the story that the, quote, missing link between humans and apes had been found, proving that Charles Darwin's theory of evolution was correct. An amateur archaeologist, Charles Dawson, claimed to have uncovered the fossils in a gravel pit at Barkham Manor, Piltdown, in Sussex. But the evidence was faked. The Natural History Museum, then part of the British Museum, which originally authenticated and displayed the find, admitted this in 1953, after scientists proved the specimen was a human skull and orangutan jawbone. Suspicion fell on Conan Doyle, who lived nearby, played golf at Piltdown and was an avid fossil collector, the Telegraph reports. He even wrote about how easy it would be to create a fossil hoax in his novel The Lost World. 
Many believe Doyle had perpetrated the stunt to embarrass scientists for mocking his spiritualist beliefs. Now, though, researchers at the Natural History Museum and Liverpool John Moores University have found new evidence that points the finger at Charles Dawson, who was originally thought incapable of such an elaborate deception. Dr Isabel de Groot from Liverpool John Moores University is quoted in the Telegraph report as saying, Although multiple individuals have been accused of producing the fake fossils, it is clear from our analysis that this work was likely all carried out by one forger, Charles Dawson. In other news, the wreck of a British steamship that sank in the Russian Arctic in 1878 has been discovered by researchers. The wreck of the 120-tonne steamship, the Thames, was found in shallow waters on the Yenisei River near the village of Goroshika, just south of the Arctic Circle. The ship was captained by explorer Joseph Wiggins during his attempts to open a trade route between the UK and Siberia through the Arctic Ocean, The Guardian reports. The wreck was discovered by two researchers from the Russian Geographical Society, which is chaired by President Vladimir Putin. Further archaeological work is needed to see if the ship can be raised. Wiggins reached the Yenisei in 1876 and left the ship to winter on the river. It is believed he tried to continue upriver the next year, but the ship ran aground and froze to the bottom. Wiggins was forced to sell it for parts and return to Britain overland, and the Thames sank during the spring thaw in 1878. This week, the September edition of BBC History magazine goes on sale. This month's issue includes articles on the Viking Great Army, Henry V, the Great Fire of London, the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich, and plenty more. You can get hold of our September issue in all good news agencies in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new UK subscribers. You can get your first five issues for just £1 each. To take advantage of this deal, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash HTP207. One of the regular sections in the magazine and on the podcast is our First World War, which is following the conflict from a distance of 100 years, through the voices of those who participated in it. We've now reached August 1916, and here, speaking to the Imperial War Museum, is George Ashurst describing his experiences of being wounded during the ongoing Battle of the Somme. On all the time that is working, you know, we're up top of trench, scrapping away, and Jerry's fighting his machine gun, and we don't know it, me and him, they're engrossed in our fight, we, we never hear it, and lads are shouting, get under, get under, can he hear Jerry's gun, you know. Too late. He drops in the trench all of a sudden, shouting, ooh, he dropped in the trench. And I drop in straight away after him. And they say, from that time where he's dropped in, stretcher bearers. What for? He's got it in the leg, so-and-so. Well, as I got in the trench, I knew my leg was going a bit dead, you know. So I said to this fellow next to me, I said, hey, my leg's dead too. Just, I think I've been it. Just feel. So he put his hand, you know, and he felt the blood in the hole. 
He said, you've got it too, corporal. Stretch the burrows again. And my leg had gone dead then. So they walked us off down to the first aid. What range had this been at? Cause you were, you oh, I bet, it, I bet we were 600 yards away from Jerry. So you were in reserve support? Yeah, oh, yes. Well in reserve, this trench. Yes, might not have been 600, but 400. We were well away from the front line, you know, what I mean. So the stretcher bearers then took you. But you see, when they fire at the front line, the bullets keep going, don't they? So they took pair of us down to dressing station. And the doctor attended to mine. He took the, what's the name of it, the, ga the gas alarm went while he was doing it. And we had half an hour stuck with them damn things on our faces. Gas masks. Then he attended to me. And he'd been to my corporal, you know. And he says, then, he says, uh, you're all right, corporal. I said, oh. I said, is it a blighter, sir? He said, yes, I think so. He said, I'll give you a fiver for it. <laughs> I said, you can't have a five bloody thousand, sir. So he said, you've done far better than your pal over there. He smashed his bones to smithereens. I said, never. Yes, he said. That meant he lost his leg, you know, that meant. Oh, well, I said, I'm sorry. I shouted across the corporal after. I said, I'm sorry. What was it, Blevin or something? His name was. Oh, it's all right. Bloody finished up there. That's just all he said, you know. I thought, aye, but you're a leg short. When you get back, don't worry. That was George Ashurst. And now let's hear from George Horridge talking about taking part in an advance into the Sinai Desert. And then we had a, a long march from Romani into Catio Oasis. I think that this march took about two days. And on the second day, our battalion were on sort of outpost duty, and my company was in reserve. And the next day, when we had to continue the march to Katia, uh, my uh, company uh, was the advance guard for the whole division. And the only people in front of us were... Australian horse, Australian horse people. And uh, it was a long march, I should say about 16 miles, soft sand, everybody was carrying 200 rounds of ammunition. It was in August, it was very hot indeed, and uh, uh, there was a difficulty over the water question because it was practically impossible to stop the men drinking water, they got so thirsty. And when we did arrive in um, Katia, uh, I had only a few men fallen out because I told the officer to march behind the men instead of in front of them. And I myself marched behind the company to try to stop any people falling out. But the battalion, which was coming behind, I think had about 80, 80 men who fell out on the march. And some of them were trying to dig water under palm trees and things like that. And uh, 
Some of them really had gone quite a bit uh, peculiar in the head through this. When we arrived at Cateoresis, we didn't know whether the Turks were there or they weren't. Uh, however, we got in and there was no Turks there. There was a well, and uh, I asked uh, everybody, of course, fell under the palm trees and uh, exhausted. And I asked her, uh, I volunteers to fill the water bottles. Uh, and I didn't get any reply. So, uh, Sergeant Major Jones and myself went and filled the water bottles ourselves. We strung them on the horse, which I had not ridden all the way. I'd walked like the men, as I thought I ought to do. Uh, and we filled the water bottles, and, uh, and then that was it. And we remained in Katia Oasis for not some two or three weeks before we continued the advance following up the Turks. That was George Horridge. You can read more from our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. Well, that's almost it for this episode, but do listen in next time when we'll be talking to Alex von Tanzelman about the Suez Crisis. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.